Hello, and welcome to the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group with General Intellect Unit. Uh, today, we are moving on to what is essentially the final section of the book. Uh, it is uh, the cybernetics of progress. Uh, there's a tiny, tiny, tiny section at the end, uh, one page long. Uh, but other than that, this is the this is the final section. All right, so uh, managers and their management scientists are driven by a meta-intention embodied as an intellecty. Their plans are embodiments of straightforward intentions, and progress towards the fulfillment of those plans is measurable in the political currency appropriate to the platform publicly mounted by the managers. The search for intellecty is something separate from all of this. Therefore, the methods to be adopted can be prescribed in advance only in terms of ethical imperatives. For example, neither a manager nor a scientist should be engaged in developments for which she or he will not personally accept moral responsibility. And therefore, it will always be a necessity to define what would constitute an indefensibly oppressive version of otherwise acceptable plans. For example, it may properly be decided to make efforts to restrain an exploding birth rate, but most of us would refuse to adopt the method of killing all young babies on site. Then, obviously, there are other methods in between this approach and mere exhortation, and each has to be considered separately. So, you know, like the one-child policy that China used to have. Um, now they're in a completely opposite demographic crisis. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> does not seem very good. Um, there is, in fact, no serious problem in pointing out and debating moral issues in this way because an ethical metasystem is well recognized, even by the amoral. So, vital as the moral issues are, the notion of entelechy was not introduced to aid an analysis that has its own meta-language already. The analysis I want to make concerns the methodology of management science. Let us first of all note that this term usually refers, on university courses for instance, to a collection of techniques. People talk about problem solving, but few can understand it. Instead, they classify the problem through the taxonomy of established techniques, and their litanies emphasize some rather than others, depending not on the problem, but on the local expertise that is available to serve the technique. Thus, we have apostles of queuing theory, high, priest, high priests of mathematical programming, and so on. But we cannot say in advance whether any particular technique will be relevant. Especially, we cannot say if the situation is likely, as has been argued, to be characterized by crisis. This is precisely because available descriptions of plans and measures of progress do not yet bear on the entelechy, and perhaps they never will. Uh, so this is to say that um, they just are sort of you know, orthogonal to the entelechy. It's like, yeah, maybe they'll match up, maybe they won't. There's no real connection between the techniques and the entelechy that is uh, being considered. 
Before this allegation is discarded as preposterous, each should reflect on the applications of management science to dangerously unstable situations that she or he has studied. There are startlingly few exceptions to the rule which shows X, who is a master of X's technique solving X-type problems. That is quite unobjectionable insofar as there really is an X-type problem. Who better than X to solve it and why not send for him? But in contexts such as those discussed in this chapter, it is very worrying indeed to observe the intervention of X and to hear him declare that X-ish technique is the thing to use. It is a monumental coincidence that it should be appropriate after all. But consult the subsequent report in which we may see why. Coincidences, it seems, are multiplicative. Though the situation was an unstructured muddle in a terrible mess, subsisting in crisis mode and surrounded by an environment of fast-changing chaos, it was fundamentally an X-type problem after all. How fortunate. Whole institutes operate on the basis of such serendipity. The methodology that it would be gratifying to be able to pinpoint, but which these arguments tend to show cannot be specified in advance, must be focused on problem rather than technique. The difficulty is that the problem is not apparent until the crisis from which it emerges has to some degree matured. For example, nothing remotely sensible could have been said about solving Chile's 1971 problems at a time only a year or so earlier, when no one, not even Unidad Popular itself, seriously contemplated that the minority coalition of Allende would become the government. No one could predict what was to be an extremely complicated international reaction to that democratic result, and no one had any means of testing the good faith of potential allies either inside or outside the country. The famous technique of scenario building is flawed in a quantitative sense in such circumstances. It simply cannot generate requisite variety. Nor can the Delphi te technique hope to do so either. Because in this approach, as I have experienced it, variety is even further squeezed in the corset of the peer group's mutual suspicion and fear of being outrageously instead of simply wrong. The strange and alarming thing is that techniques such as these begin to work only at the point where the variety of the real world has been repeatedly decimated by the cyclic operation of the crisis mode, as indicated by the model of the last section. When superpowers artificially delimit structural variety to values of 3 or 5, so that only these states will be physically, permi uh, physically permitted, then it is possible to construct this number of scenarios, and it is possible for the peer group of Delphi to converge on the likely outcome. But the scientific techniques are th then accessories before the fact, rather than problem solvers. And the whole strategic edifice crumbles immediately when an ingenious opponent or nature itself expands the variety that the analysts and activists have jointly conspired to contain. The extra variety that may be reassembled at this point is the variety of the entelechy, less its so far realized three or five. Now, an attempt was made at the beginning of this chapter to say something that would hold in general about the nature of crisis. Whether we can conclude the chapter by saying anything definite about solving an as-yet-unidentified problem depends on our ability to conjure a methodology of the entelechy itself. The following story is intended to illuminate the issue. So I believe everything we just read was uh, something we'd done last time. Uh, so we'll get I to believe the, so, yes. That, that seems familiar. Yeah. We'll get to the new stuff, which I think is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
The early work of Taylor and Gilbreth. 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 The early work of Taylor and Gilbreth in the creation of, of time and motion study appeared towards the end of the 19th century. A little, a little later, Frank Gilbreth, who was an industrial engineer, and his wife Lillian, who was a psychologist, pioneered the movement in production management, which eventually came to be known as work study. Much of this was extremely effective. Productivity improvements ranging from some 30 to some 300% were generally recorded. The analysis of repetitive movements into small elements, termed thurbilgs, thurbligs, thurbligs, yes, small elements termed thurbligs, oh my god, <laughs> the analysis of repetitive movements into small elements termed thurbligs, which of course is the word gilbreth spelt roughly backwards, became a teachable skill. Later, the story of these two remarkable people and their extremely large family was to reach a much wider public than that of the industrial shop floor through both a book and a film about the family. It was called Cheaper by the Dozen. Frank Gilbreth died before I was born. His wife Lillian, however, lived on to a splendid old age. In the mid-1950s, I was directing management sciences for the largest steel company in Britain, United Steel. This was before the final nationalization of the industry. Final in quotes. Uh, final as of the time of writing. <laughs> uh, the name of the organization was the Department of Operational Research and Cybernetics, but it included the responsibility for other branches of management science, notably the development of computer applications and for work study. This late, uh, sorry, this latter arrangement was extremely unusual because an absurd civil war had broken out in Britain between the leading specialists in work study, who tended to regard operational research scientists as mathematical narcissists, and OR scientists, who tended to regard work study engineers as the Tony, Tony Lumpkins of industry. Problems were certainly generated by the fact that the work-study manager of United Steel was a member of my own management team at Cyborg House. At any rate, it was about this time, though perhaps during its preparatory stage, that to my total astonishment and intense delight, I found myself entertaining Lillian Gilbreth to dinner in Sheffield. Dr. Gilbreth was consumed with curiosity about the internecine warfare in management advisory circles to which I have just referred. She knew that the problem existed in Britain, which it did not in her native United States, and she required explanations of me as to how anything so ridiculous could have occurred. I thought that I understood the essentially political reasons quite well and spent a long time in explaining what had happened. At the end of it all, I asked her this very direct question. Were your husband alive today, where would he stand in this argument? She unhesitatingly replied, he would be president of the Operational Research Society. How can this story be interpreted? In Decision and Control, I contended that Archimedes was the first OR scientist because of the uses he made of science in advising King Huron II about his strategy in defending the city of Syracuse against the Roman siege. What was Gilbreth doing in the early years of this century? 
he did not attempt to burn down a fleet of ships by focusing a large magnifying glass on their sails. That much is certain. And had he been president of the OR Society in the 1950s, it seems very unlikely to me that he would still have been analyzing the motions of industrial workers on a production line, which had probably been automated by that time. In short, the contention is that at all times in the history of the world, there have been perspicuous minds seeking to improve managerial competence and societary eudemony in every conceivable way, and by the use of the very latest knowledge available to them, both of technique and also of problem diagnosis. It is these activities that might well be grouped together as a methodology towards entelechy. All right, so any comments on this bit? Uh, we've got uh, Jake, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mostly raised my hand for the first part, which I then realized, yeah, we had talked about last time. Um, so I'll focus on this one. Um, so is he, so is, is basically just sort of saying, if I understood this correctly, that like there have been attempts all throughout history to basically like get do what OR or cybernetics or management science was trying to do, or was you know what, what is now termed that um, in various ways, like basically just applying science to the uh, like um, realm of or or realm of management, or I don't know what. I think it's more that uh, it's 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 more that um, they so he says there have been perspicuous minds seeking to improve managerial competence and societary eudemony in every conceivable way and by the use of very latest knowledge available to them. Uh, it is these activities that might well be grouped together as a methodology towards entelechy. So it's kind of like the improvement of society through the best technique uh, and improvement of managerial competence towards like these eudemonistic goals that people have. So it's not strictly or so much as it is like well you know um well so uh, work study and or are both kind of like the intellecty efforts of their time at the moment of right. their invention right i mean is he is he trying to sort of is he like trying to say like a kind of like more meta point about that where that the sort of focus on like the particularities of the actual production was like the focus of a lot of this stuff, this kind of like effort up until very recently, at which point it's sort of focused to the more like managerial side of it that, that maybe is kind of gone, not un, unstudied, but like understudied perhaps, oh, yeah. or, or is that, am I extrapolating too much into what he's read? I think he's just saying that, um, uh, we shouldn't get overly attached to any particular technique because the times change and what is needed for entelechy also changes. So maintaining a kind of flexible attitude towards those things and using the best techniques we have to achieve 
the ethical goals we have is is really the method that he's he's seeking out. I guess it's like kind of at the beginning of the book when he's saying that, you know, uh, if it works, it's outdated, right? Is is okay, that that, that, that point? Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you're not like wrong in what he's gesturing to in terms of like what we need to do. But when he's talking about Entelechi, that's it's kind of the general point he's trying to make. Um, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, he's he's contrasting the attitude of Gilbreth himself, who would who would have adapted to the times, right, versus the Gil, Gilbreth's disciples who were engaged in a turf war against the people that Gilbreth would probably have actually sided with. Um, it's related to his point in the previous page about like the golden hammer problem, that like once you've got the golden hammer, everything starts to look like golden nails. Um, and that's especially true when these become entrenched as professions. So the, the work-study um, fanatics are people who have a vested interest in making that be the golden hammer. Um, and they're not doing the honest science of Archimedes and Gilbreth and Beer of like actually honestly using the best techniques that are available to you today. I mean, we can definitely take that as socialists, right? Like, I mean, how many fucking like trot dead enders and like very various dead ends of all sorts are people just absolutely fucking committed to? Um, the Leninist dead enders, all these folks, right? And they're they're not doing honest honest science. They're just like dead ending for whichever thing they've pinned their flag to. Um, golden hammer attitude is very bad. You should adapt to the the best truth on the ground today and and do your best with it, rather than trying to professionalize yourself like that. It's basically an argument against the idea of immortal science. You know, like yeah, it's exactly. like, well, if it if it if it works, it's out of date. There is no mm -hmm. immortal science. Exactly. There, there's uh, no immortal science. Certainly, yeah. It's a, it's all it's all mortal sciences all the way down. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, uh, for, for 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 that one, yeah, I I, I thought about how uh, you know that Milton Friedman quote about how like uh, you know when, when uh, 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 you know what when, when a crisis hits, you know the people who are like the most organized, who have like the the most like solidly formed ideas, are the people who are going to be able to jump in. And you know, like that's what um, uh, uh, you know him and his uh, neoliberal psychos did. Um, uh, and I also think of what like uh, you know like this is what the IMF does. You know, um, uh, 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 you know they, they've got their one trick. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, have more of your economy governed by you know the international market, and you know, and they, they basically just wait until people are in crisis mode and don't really have uh, uh, you know a, a, a way to steer. And and because they offer something that actually is very well structured. You know, I mean, like, uh, uh, it becomes the path of least resistance. And, you know, I, mean, I think there's, like, an important strategic lesson in there. You know, I mean, like, uh, uh, yeah, no, notice how, like, no matter what happens in the economy, you know, hedge funds naturally do better. You know, I mean, when when, when uh, a bunch of, like, small landlords have to sell out, you know, I mean, the, the hedge fund is there to do it. Yeah, I think, yep, socialist org should be like that. You know, we, we should have community land trusts that are, like, there to snap up small buildings. Um, yeah, I think... So I think there's a there's a significant difference between what Beer is saying and what Friedman was saying. Um, they're kind of arguing opposite points. Uh, so um, I think what Beer would say is like about that is that, yeah, you know, um, what the Chicago boys 
had or what the IMF has in terms of a uh, organized and committed uh, cadre that is that is able to act has a kind of efficacy, but it's clearly orthogonal to Entelechy and to Eudemony. So it's like it's more like looking at the work study people, you know, if you take the perspective that they're kind of like uh, entrenched vested interests and wreckers and like, you know, if you say, okay, well, they're an obstruction, but they're super well organized and they're going to torpedo any or OR efforts is kind of like what the IMF does. So it's, it's not, it's like, yeah, that has a kind of strategic efficacy, obviously, to be really organized. Uh, and you can see that with like, you know, uh, truck groups that destroy uh, or like Stalinist groups that destroy like uh, small scale uh, socialist organizing efforts. Uh, but it's not the principle that Beer is pointing to here, even though it is a real con strategic consideration. Uh, Matt, go ahead. I mean, I, I think the IMF, like, does have an entelechy, though. I mean, you know, it's class rule by, by the bourgeoisie. I mean, it's not eudemony for most of humanity, but I mean, like, they do have a plan. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's kind of like two levels like to this of like, I, um, I think he's saying like uh, when it, when something really is just a matter of technique and, you know, we, we kind of both agree like where, you know, um, uh, uh, what we want the outcome to be. You know, we agree on the IntelliKey, but, you know, what like uh, we you know, we have like our, our, our pet um, uh, solution, um, uh, uh, you know, yeah, we, you shouldn't let your solution grow into a new IntelliKey. Mm hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think this is a fundamental problem with Beer's uh, assumptions here uh, because he argues <laughs> he argues that uh, ethical questions of what a good society looks like uh, are not are, are already developed and not strictly uh, a problem in themselves. Uh, and therefore, uh, Entelechy is a matter of like working off of the that vision of eudemony and and uh using the best possible techniques to implement it whereas the reality is uh no actually we very uh intensely disagree about what that looks like um and uh so you can't take that as a given maybe you could in you know the 1970s but you sure as shit can't now. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this is uh, a more complicated problem than uh, Beer is uh, alluding to here, which, you know, gets back to his general idea that like, well, like a lot of these things are like a lot of the problems that happen to Chile are more the cause of ignorance uh, than they are of uh, maliciousness or some kind of fundamental disagreement among humanity. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think uh, that's a good point to discuss because, uh, um, you know, uh, what the good society looks like is going to vary according to your, uh, your class position, obviously. Um, all right.
so let's continue. Uh, it is interesting that the initially obtrusive features of such a methodology are negative in that they run counter to so much common practice. Not only does the methodology not depend on a taxonomy of technique, because this is simply something that it, something dictated by time and place, it is antipathetic to any other fixation of that kind. Readers may have noticed the Latin motto devised for the dedication of this book. So that's the one we were just talking about. If it works, it's, it's, it's broken or it's out of date. Um, uh, duh, 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 duh. Uh, it was very seriously intended. When we discover that a particular technique works, we train a cadre of people in its use. This is a sensible thing to do, in its way. But the grotesque consequences have by now been so often repeated that we should take note of them. Uh, thinking here about, for example, like the number of people that are trained as uh, oil and gas engineers here in Alberta. And then are like, why aren't there jobs for us? We, we are so good at this technique. Um, uh, the people who have uh, been trained in a set of techniques that have been found to work in occasional contexts proceed to institutionalize their activities. They constitute themselves a profession. They provide themselves with protective sanctions. They cease to be innovative and they do what they can to block the fresh initiatives of others. This is why Lillian Gilbreth said instantly that her late husband would not, by that date, have been content with the work-study label. It seems that every generation of innovators has to crystallize a point of view, which cannot go far beyond the limitations of its own time and place. If it attempts to do so, it cannot be properly understood. And even the well-disposed will defensively declare it to be 20 years ahead of its time. What is observed to happen next is that the institutionalization of such technique-oriented approaches to the managerial task eventually becomes counterproductive. This is partly because the time and place change, partly because innovation remains by definition something that has not been tried before, and partly because the motivation for supporting new managerial thrusts and for supporting a feather-bedded career are wildly different. So this gets back to all the opportunity capture stuff we've been talking about uh, in uh, the understanding class uh, reading group with From Alpha to Omega. Um, the manager himself is compelled to live with that dilemma. So must the management scientist with whom she or he is in double harness. Having spoken first of what is not in order to clear presupposition and prejudice to one side, let us now attempt a positive statement about a tentative and final methodology towards Entelechy. All right, uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, the the, the thing, the thing with like, like, like the feather bedding and yeah, the the, 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 the like kind of ossified um, uh, um, professional societies and stuff. I mean, like I, I think that's actually like kind kind of a. Um, uh, like a major reason to go with some version of socialism, because I mean, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, in the U.S., like there is no floor. 
Like anything that goes wrong could, you know, could, you know, uh, could plausibly like result in you, you know, being kicked out of your apartment and just being in in a cycle of uh, uh, in and out of jail, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, for for various, uh, uh, you know, ways that we criminalize um, homelessness. Um, uh, uh, really, yeah, anything that goes wrong, like, could be that. And and so, yeah, I mean, it is perfectly rational for you know uh, uh, people to behave the way like, uh, uh, you know. You know, the kind of like, you know, craft unions that have basically become guilds where, you know, you can only join if you're the son of a member. Like, that is actually totally rational in a society where, you know, if you don't carve out like your little thing, I mean, you know, you could, you know, you could be totally fucked. But, you know, I mean, if you're in a society where, you know, like, you know, like your high status profession, you know, gets made obsolete, you know, I mean, it's not so bad, you know. You, you maintain a decent standard of living and you can retrain. Like, I mean, you know, like, like there's less reason to grip on that tightly. Yes, uh, certainly, certainly. Um, it's uh, maybe disagreeable uh, to be uh, to have your technique put by the wayside because uh, it's your identity is uh, invested in it. But you don't have to worry about, you know, being beggared by that uh, turn of events. So it's not a perfect uh, countermeasure to the problems of opportunity capture, uh, but it is a better one than, uh, you know, what is offered by craft unionism or something like that. Uh, Okay. so uh, let's continue with this tentative and final methodology towards entelechy. Uh, so this is all in point form. Uh, I will try to make it clear what is a point um, here. The methodology is directed primarily to the recognition of people's legitimate meta intentions insofar as they will affect other people. Its skills are therefore based in human rather than technological or theoretical factors. Uh, So I believe when he's speaking here of meta intentions, he's essentially speaking of ethical intentions. Um, Second point, uh, it must, however, command the transdisciplinary insight and skills to support such recognition and subsequent diagnoses. Collection and screening mechanisms are therefore needed to ensure that no knowledge model, technique, hardware, nor software that may have relevance is either left out of account or dragged irrelevantly into the arena. Third point. Since since Entelechy represents the actualization of a potentiality, its methodology must be able to measure performance, quantitatively defined in Chapter 11 as the ratio of the two estimates. The triple index described will measure the residual potentiality from today's actuality, as the component indices of productivity and latency both approach unity. Fourth point. The methodology becomes thereby chapter 11, figures 28 and 29, the tool of normative planning that brings the entelechy into focus. 
importance is not attached to an accuracy in making these measurements that would be spurious in any case. The concern is with two other functions of measurement that are only incidentally concerned with any degree of precision. To compare orders of magnitude as a mean of, means of allocating effort and to monitor secular trends, the detection of which depends more on consistency than on precision. Fifth point, the methodology must be able to detect, recognize, measure, and adapt to shifts in the structural variety of unrealized potential. For example, we detect hundreds of possible states in a given potentiality. Suddenly, the government declares only three to be admissible, and of these, one is evidently the best. Work on this problem should automatically cease, but it does not. The example may be reversed, concluding that work on the problem should automatically begin. Again, it does not. And the final point, it must be functionally organized in obeying these precepts so as to move fast. If it is unable to move fast enough, the methodology will certainly fail. This outcome's counting as part of the entailment of enough. Then the methodology itself must be equipped to determine what is enough. Then, by cybernetic theorem, the methodology must generate a model of its own activity. Compiling and many times rewriting this charter for a methodology towards entelechy has taken so long that reading it so quickly may have left you breathless. It is highly compressed. Let us therefore return to the encapsulating meta-language in which this section was introduced. So, uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, he's, he's right. This is extremely compressed. It's, it's like the entire book compressed into just a few points. Um, I, th I thought his, his, his phrasing close to the top of 387 was interesting that the methodology has to adapt to shifts in the structural variety of unrealized potential, which I think he just means like adaptive planning. That like, as as you you will start out with some notion of like a potential a potentiality that could be actualized, and then you'll plan to do something and then do it. But along the way, the structure of the possibility space that you analyzed in the first place changes. So like, as, as you're actualizing the the virtual changes also you have to keep changing it's like it's a no no more five-year plans it's it's five millisecond plans from here on out right like and constantly uh constantly renewed and constantly adapted to what's actually happening i just, I just found that phrasing was nice you have to change to the structural variety of the unrealized potential not just the structural variety of the actualized thing yes yes uh that's that's yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, I think five milliseconds is probably like the order of planning that like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Wall Street uh, betting computers uh, use. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, and it is a relevant time frame. Uh, but we probably need multiple time frames that we work on. Like, I think uh, what's the way we've put it before that like it's it's a five year plan, but it's rewritten every 30 milliseconds. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. I feel like there's, there's, there's all sorts of different time frames you need to operate on, mm -hmm. and you need to keep them in in sync with each other. 
um, yeah. so that like the five year plan doesn't become totally useless, right? Or it, yeah, yeah. And it's it's something I've observed actually in in work um, at various companies of like this being a real problem, right? That like you start out with a project with a plan or whatever, and then you get halfway into it, and then but the, trying to pitch people and especially the managers on the notion of the plan might in fact be be wrong because the the thing has changed, like not, not just like not just like the thing that's actual, like the thing we've built so far is is different. Mm. But the structure of the possibility space is now different. Yeah, that seems to be a very hard pitch for some people, um, and I guess especially if you're somebody who is deeply entrenched in in a kind of management bureaucracy, it's especially difficult because realizing it would probably be the death of you. Um, but you know, the, the, it's I think it's a really good point from Beer, right? That like the this in in the like virtual actual uh, dance, like the structure of the virtual will change at the same time as, as the actual stuff does. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think that's very that's definitely very important. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I think having the 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 ability to move fast too is a very like important one because I think people are very used to, you know people are very used to organizations that move slowly right they're used I mean some people you know have the concept that like an organization by definition like has to move slower, which like not necessarily true. But I think, you know, I, I think that just sort of belays the like real need for this sort of thing to like come into existence or to be like created rather, not just pop into existence. But, you know, um, uh, cause people aren't, you know, they, they like lower their expectations and I, and it kind of gets back to the whole, like, uh, that point before it, right. The like shift in, structural structural variety like i guess in this sense it'd be more like the inward structural variety that he kind of talks about in the previous pages couple pages where it's like because they people like cut themselves off to like oh well this potential is this isn't a potential so like let's not worry about it and then they kind of don't think oh well this could actually be useful in this you know if the problem changes or if there's a new problem uh that needs to be solved or whatever um and yeah, this is definitely like very, <laughs> this is very condensed for sure. But I, but it is very important. And I like how he, I like how he talks to the, the first point is basically saying like this whole thing is, is based in human factors. It's not about technology, like technological or theoretical stuff. Cause like it's only as good as the people uh, that it acts upon and acts through or that it acts through or upon. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think, um, yeah, I, I just and I'm just to get back to that that last point of the moving fast. So often I feel like there's times where it's like people don't move fast enough, and then you know, like like say there's the potential to like you know act on this new situation, like come out with some platform based on it, or or make a change in in like your actions based on it, and then they don't move fast enough, and then after it's over, the possibility of like capitalizing on it is over they act as though, well, there was nothing we could have done, you know, because they, they have this like V either. It's either like a view of like, well, this was never going to, the organization was never going to be able to act on it. So like we didn't, and therefore this proves my, my uh, understanding of things not being able to move quick enough, but then, you know, it really sort of just belays the like lack of um, 
seeing this sort of potential future, I guess, or, or like the potential for like, you know, no, we can really have like an organization that is able to really act quickly on these things and mobilize things quickly. Um, you know, but people are very used, they're just used to things moving slowly, I think. And people, and, and also to get to kind of what he was talking about in the previous pages as well, like people just get sort of set in their ways and are like comfortable with how things are and, you know, see like, oh, well, if we start to move quickly, that could threaten like me as someone who doesn't want to participate that much in this thing, you know, like I don't want to be constantly checking like, uh, you know, whatever platform for communication and having to react quickly on things because I have other priorities and that's fine. You know, that's like, that's just the reality of life. But then people like sort of extrapolate that and act as though like, well, then that means that this could never be that way, but it, but it could mean that just like, oh, maybe you shouldn't be in this position. Like maybe you should give up the, the little bit of power to someone else who can, who has the capacity to like, uh, you know, act on the speed which, with which is required to like, you know, deal with the like ever-changing world. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to call back to the very first point, right, that um, the methodology is directed to the recognition of people's legitimate meta-intentions as for the effect of the people. Um, I like this because it's, it's human relational, first and foremost. It, remind, it reminds us of, of our kind of Marxist frameworks. But also, like, if we bring the Marxism back into it, recognizing people's legitimate meta-intentions regarding other people means we have to recognize conflict and enmity is real. It's not a misunderstanding, which, again, is a thing I think Beer kind of slips into of thinking like, oh, well, it's actually just a misunderstanding. No, people's people's intention regarding each other can be malicious legitimately. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's something we should definitely take when we're updating this thinking to and blending it with our, our Marxist thinking as well. Is that like conflict is extremely real um, and there are many agents in the world who have legitimately awful meta intentions regarding other human beings. Yeah, conflict is real and conflict is relational, right? Uh, those are things worth understanding. Uh, okay, um, yeah, just getting uh, to your point, Jake, I think that, um, you know, regarding moving fast, like, just thinking about, like, how... Like right now we have like this day after tomorrow shit happening in Texas and like the entire West Coast is going to be on fire this summer. Um, and it's like this kind of dithering effort that we see from anyone in power is completely out of step with the pace of the crisis we're in because the pace is accelerating like it's constantly accelerating and like the the speed of organizational planning is like constant if not getting slower um those are those are bad bad tendencies uh we're not acting effectively at all and beer would be drumming everyone over the head uh about this stuff yeah all right uh so 
Um, let's continue. Archimedes, whom people probably called a geometer, was a mathematician who would very likely have submitted some version of this statement to King Huron as an account of his role as a management scientist, whether at Syracuse or as directing Project Eureka from his bathtub on the same monarch's behalf. The industrial mathematician of today would not subscribe to such a charter. Why should he? He is otherwise engaged in, for example, modeling crystal structures by algebraic topology. The government statistician of today would not subscribe to it, and why should he? He is advancing the demography of the census by computerized topography. Maybe those two should get together, but there the matter ends. Frank Gilbreth, industrial engineer par excellence, and surely also Lillian Gilbreth, psychologist par excellence, could, on her own showing, surely have improved on this draft, had they been available. Today, most industrial engineers and also psychologists undertake great works, rightly and productively, sorry, rightly and productively, without talking about entelechies. Why should they? And so the procession goes on. Some of the OR men from the 1940s, some of the founders of general systems theory, some of those who talked and from their talk put forth the name of cybernetics, might also have written some version of this methodological statement. But many distinguished OR men, GST men, and cyberneticians today are, as a matter of fact, doing something else under those respective banners. In this lies no complaint. The point is just this. Something methodological connects the approach to societary and managerial change of those who, in their time and place, and whatever the banner they seized or were given to hold, might have written or subscribed to a statement of this kind. I have not invented the methodological notions that I have selected to focus on the concept of entelechy, and I did not invent that either. What this something methodological may be is suggested by circular definition in the statement itself, by allusion and illustration in the stories told to embellish it, and by noting the unexpectedness of the approach used in the domain of the problem itself when it matures, which happens because under this methodology, the problem is not defined by the pr problem-solving technique. If these complicated methodological considerations make it quite difficult to recognize who would have been, might now be, or might henceforth become a signatory of the Charter, an infallible and very practical guide can be inferred from the principles put forward themselves. No one who thought that the principles were right would sign any Charter that sought to embody them. No one who understood them would try to found a learned society, a professional institution, or a journal that sought to uphold them, and no one who acted upon them would take any interest in giving a name to the methodology itself. The methodology, as the subheading under which this is written tried by oxymoron to say, is intrinsically tentative, absolute in practice, and in general an expository device. Any thoughts on this bit? Shane, go ahead. It's it's very much that thing the Pickering picks up on, right? The the being outside the institutions, right? But like Beer's observing this this thing that like if you're really on the right track, you're going to be outside the institutions basically by definition. 
um, and that that kind of should be the case. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, fun fun little thing um, from to finish that section on. Uh, Jake. Yeah, this actually kind of makes me think of the sort of like, you know, idea or or, or whatever, like the notion that like, you know, the left has become so disconnected from like the workers' movements from from the communities of like people in the United States. You know, I, I can only really speak to the United States, but I think it's pretty uh, a general problem for most of like the developed world or whatever. Um, you know, the sort of old left has become disconnected and that's because they sort of institutionalized, I think, a lot of this stuff in ways, not not in like good, not in the good, not in the good way, but in the like sort of ossified institutions way. And, and just thinking of like, you know, like, well, what's the path forward? And it's that the path forward is not going to come out of these old institutions or old like formations, you know, and it's, it's got to kind of come from, from people outside that uh, from people who wouldn't call them, who wouldn't consider themselves as like coming up, like being left theoreticians or whatever, but like people who are like embedded, embodied, not embodied, embedded in the sort of like movements because they are part of those movements and doing these things for their own like survival and, and necessity, you know? And so like the task becomes to like bring these people into a sort of like new institutional uh of this kind that Beer's talking about, the kind that doesn't like stifle these things and that allows them to like act, enact these ideas and, and concepts and theories like on a the pace and scale necessary. But like just that, you know, um, yeah, that just people, people who wouldn't consider, I just, cause this is, you know, this is just something that I like always encounter, right? If people like not think they have something useful to contribute to like, leftist organizing you know but in reality they, they probably do they just don't have the words to like explain it or like the confidence to like say well what about this you know and i think so i think a lot of the task is to is to sort of bring that out of people you know in a obviously like a not in a coercive way or anything but just like like get people to to have the confidence and and skills to like express it and then enact enact it you know like whatever that uh whatever that approach is, um, I just think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. Like, I think, um, I don't think like beer's perspective here is necessarily that like the development has to be totally organic to, um, some outsider group but it's more likely to come from there i guess is 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 what you would kind of take away in the sense that you know the inculcation into some kind of established uh group like you know the the or people or the gst people you know getting that disciplinary training and all that kind of stuff and like you know, going through that and being told that you need to focus on a specific problem uh, within the framework that you've learned and, and then having the credential and bringing that into your life uh, and, and, and using that as like a token to try to get ahead. Um, they all kind of work against the sort of uh, innovation that he's describing here. Um so, yeah, I mean, that also goes for, like, people who come up through established social democratic parties, um, 
or people who uh, uh, come up through the union bureaucracy, right? Uh, it's, there's, there's a lot of techniques that are in some ways tried and true, but uh, may not be what we need. Uh, all right, uh, so let's do one more section, and then I guess our, f well, yeah, we'll probably have like one more, one more session after this. Uh, okay. Uh, on technological method, the employment of methodology subsumes the deployment of a technology that serves those methodological ends. It is too glib to assume that the technology that should be used is fully explicated by the state of the art. For one thing, I mean, like, just look at Bitcoin, right? It's like... <laughs> the technology is totally subsumed to a, a completely useless uh, methodology. Um, uh, all right. Uh, <clears throat> for one thing, there may be financial restraints on the slice of available hardware that can be purchased, and there may be human power constraints on the software servicing that can realistically be undertaken. For another thing, in a novel situation where a new methodology is embraced, the state of the art itself stands to be extended. As earlier chapters showed, all these considerations applied in the Chilean experience. There is yet more to it than that, of course. The technology that we hold in our hands, literally, as an extension of our brain-directed limbs, determines the very nature of the problem-solving homeostat. In part, it creates the technology that makes it possible. In part, through its informational techniques and global communication systems, technology nourishes the problem, as was seen through the model of crisis. Certainly, and in so many ways, technology is also part of a solution, of, uh, part of the solution to the problem. The point is that the technology deployed can never be judged aside from the problem-solution homeostasis in which it inheres and to which it helps import from. Uh, or sorry, and to which it helps import form. Many people seem to think that it can. They are prepared to take a stand, as it were, in a vacuum as to whether technology is a good or bad thing. This position is untenable because life cannot be sustained without tools. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's... It just reminds me of the people who are constantly standing like SpaceX and stuff like, oh, well, yeah, like we don't like Elon Musk, but I mean, space exploration, that's just good. It's just a good thing. Period. That's all there is to it. And then I guess the opposite position is like Whitey on the moon, which isn't like, it, it, you know, like. It isn't 100% exclusionary of space exploration, but it's like, yo, you better get your shit sorted out first before you go sending Whitey to the Whitey to Mars. Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> um, this position is untenable because life cannot be sustained without tools. When they are appropriate, they may appropriately be cherished. The master craftsman handles his tools with love and it is a fact that computer programmers, the better ones, relate becomingly to their machines, much as good car drivers do. 
Then it sounds as though the good and bad appellations relate more to the user than the technology used. Speaking personally, I have learned to minimize technological intervention between myself and nature, but this is a reasonable strategy only within the limits of viability of the system concerned. Taking the personal case as an example, there is a vocation as well as a physiology to keep viable. In the aid of the latter, I use the minimum technology required to make minimal garments and furniture, comestibles and heat. I think that's supposed to be combustibles. I think it's a, that's a typo. Um, in the aid of the former, I use the pen and the light without which these words could not now be written. I will use trains and aeroplanes to reach the scene of action when required, but not otherwise. Telephone, television, computer terminals, and the like have been eliminated. And since it is possible to do arithmetic mentally and to carry water, there is no need for calculators or water pipes. I mean, you say that, but just wait till you get really old. Uh, <laughs> saying as, as a person who has, has lived a property without plumbing. Uh, in short, the adoption of technology can and should be carefully gauged, not simply taken for granted as it usually is. Uh, at the level of the firm, the social service, or the nation, this homely example illustrates a form of analysis that is rarely formally made. The difficulty is to counsel caution to any group that has already has been already imprinted with the epitome of progress. Imprinting destroys variety. The progress imprint seduces the mass to behave as if one criterion alone should really matter, and off they go like a swarm of bees or perhaps a colony of lemmings. Uh could point to technology misinforming us about the nature of lemmings. Thanks to, thanks to Walt Disney. <laughs> Obviously, this imprinting is not accidental, and there is a vast advertising industry to prove it, which, it may cybernetically be noted, makes major use of positive feedback. But whatever the case, it was profoundly shocking to me on first arrival in Chile to discover how far this social process had already gone because I had not expected that. The result was to influence the recommendations on the use of regulatory technology. I had expected, given that Chile is 3,000 miles long, that the motor car would be an issue. But to find eudemony measured on the linea blanca, that is by the provision of white line goods such as washing machines and refrigerators, was too much. Even with hindsight, however, and realizing the possibly malign influence of these shocks on the recommendations, it is hard to envisage offering an abacus rather than a computer to a linea blanca interventor. Then let us be very cautious with the complicated problem and not dismiss it with naivete. In India, there is a research laboratory at Hyderabad dedicated to the deployment of high science in aid of the ordinary villager not indeed to supply refrigerators and so to determine what she or he eats, nor indeed to mass-produce television sets and so to determine what she or he thinks. It exists to improve the design of potter's wheels, cooking ovens, irrigation systems, small enterprise. 
No computer, no wind tunnel, no international recourse is barred to these projects, which exploit every known scientific aid. The standard is excellence without cultural perversion. Does that approach solve the problem, <clears throat> or is it condescendingly paternalistic? And why was the Harajan, untouchable community that I entered alone on this visit in 1974, still remote from its parent village, just as it would have been when I first I was first shocked by that phenomenon in 1945, after a quarter of a century of independence. Part of the answer is that there are several, uh, severally practical impediments to change which the outsider does not understand. For example, it is easy to talk about the modernization of transportation in India and to say that it is religious prejudice that maintains the bullet cart. In fact, most of, India, most of the capital in India is tied up in these transports. It cannot simply be written off, discarded. In any case, as we survey the world energy scene, India may have the best answer already, even at the expense of progress with a capital P. Uh, reviewing the, <coughs> the two preceding paragraphs, and apart from noting their author's uncharacteristic propensity, propensity to be shocked, nothing is clear beyond the absolute necessity to think in terms of entelechy rather than prediction of realizing potential rather than concocting technique-oriented plans. Significantly, both Chile and India had ambitious national plans which failed. The Chilean case has already been reviewed. India had one of the earliest plans to fail in the free world, and this happened despite its having been directed by a man of brilliance. Uh, Mahalano Bis, uh, who might well have also been a saint. We must not minimize, therefore, the problem of choice in developmental technology and the sense in which that problem is bound into the homeostasis of unfolding crisis that has surely been established above. Then now, perhaps, is the moment to restore the balance, as the personal story of my own modus vivendi tried to do in adumbration. By considering the sense in which any particular technology in this examination called automation uh, may also be irrelevant to the problems of humankind. Uh, so uh, let's talk about this section. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, him talking about the uh, like not trying to sort of like assume here, like this is the solution to your problems. Now let's go about and try and uh, implement that the best we can, you know, like in talking about the, the uh, laboratory in India um, really, really makes me think a lot about like the internet of things and how it's like internet as like this new technology just implemented everywhere. And that will, be able to solve all these problems, but it's not, it's like completely missing the, not missing the forest for the trees, but like, it's like grasping at this sort of like uh, particular solution set rather than like trying to fully understand and like respect the scope of the problem, you know, like uh, the problem isn't like, the problem isn't that you don't know, you know, you don't get like a message on your phone when you're like milk is low in your fridge. It's that you don't have like an easy way to get 
milk quickly and cheaply, you know, or, or whatever, like, on a, you know, as like a, a example or like something like that, where it's just like these, it just makes me think of these like crazy tech solutions to like problems that aren't really problems or like problems that have a much lower tech, but like maybe more costly or like more human solution, but like it's easier and cheaper in the long run for like companies to, to just implement like these tech solutions that, I mean, this is something, you know, something he's talking about right through that whole book of like these like solutions that are implemented by firms to just like placate the shareholders rather than like solve problems, you know, a similar kind of thing, I think. And, and um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, I, I'm, I'm glad, you know, I think this is like one of the, one of these things that like, I don't know when I, when people like hear cybernetics, if they don't know about it, they kind of assume that it, it means this, it means like, Oh, technological solutions to problems that like people have that aren't necessarily those solutions, but it's like, so it's good to hear and read. I mean, he's done this throughout the whole book, but read beard, like talk about this, like problem and explicitly name it. You know, it's like one of those sort of things that you can point to and be like, well, this is, you know, here's why you should, here's why you should read beer. Like it's not this sort of like technocrat as you, as you might assume if you just like sort of have a very, very uh, shallow surface understanding of, of him. But, um, but yeah. And then, and then just the, the last thing of the like technology being the thing that shapes our, how we approach the problem, you know, of like thinking about all these like, ways that people want to do activism uh like through like twitter or whatever because like we have this technology we're connected to so many people like so so therefore the the solution to these problems that affect all these people must be found through this technological platform it's like no it's just sort of an incidental thing it's connecting you for different reasons and like the solution isn't going to be found by by trying to weaponize that kind of thing you know i mean it can be like part of it but it can't be the whole solution Right, right. Um, yeah, and I think like with the Internet of Things, it's it's really like an ultimate example of putting the technique first, and then solution is like a question mark. Like it's, I mean, it's just something that's stunk of terrible, terrible forethought, lack of forethought. Uh, to me ever since it was first created um, just yeah as as a marketing as a marketing idea I guess it started with the connected home through Microsoft I think they, they were the ones who dreamed up this idea um, because they needed to uh, expand the market share or the, not the market share but the their product lines uh, into new areas that weren't a personal computer uh, anyway, uh, let's go to Shane and then to Matt. Yeah, in these couple of paragraphs, it's like even more clear that like to to actualize Beer's proposals would need the overthrow of capitalism because capitalism institu institutionalizes this whole problem on a global scale, right? Like the, the investment and capitalization in the sense of like producing machinery and like um, hardware to produce more stuff locks you into these trajectories right like it, it 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 is it is just solidifying this policy of like making the stuff first and then go find a way that it could be used um to flog it like the, the structure of the capital investment loop is is this problem um 
and yeah, you you to get to what beer wants here, you'd have to get past that. You'd have to get past investment subordinating the future to the past, right? Because everything in the future is subordinated to realizing past investments. Um, and if that means doing it by force, like you're 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 gonna you're gonna buy this this fucking Internet of Things microchip thing, and you're gonna love it because it's the only option available, right? Or it's, it's because we need to actualize the the profits from it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like it's 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 more clear here that like it it's it, it's totally sick to the core, right? Like that this this very structure of investment and the, the structure of like creating futures based on prior investments is. Um, is really grotesque. Or yeah, like as, as Jake says in the chat, fossil fuels, right? Like the, one of the th- one of the obstructions to um, going green is is literally just called the carbon bubble, right? Where there's so much capitalization and so much investment and so much fucking infrastructure and hardware built around all that crap that if you were to write it off, it would destroy the global economy instantly. Um, and so it can't be written off. Uh, and so it can't be devalued. And so you can't have your solar panels, you know? Um, we need to need to shake off that uh, that 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 leash, you know. Indeed, uh, it's a terrible reality here in Alberta. Obviously, um, that just yeah, so much sunk investment in fossil fuels, and people just aren't gonna let it go. Uh, Matt, go ahead. <clears throat> And, and, and I mean, I, I think for you know, like green tech, whether you know nuclear or renewables, or even like you know actually taking fusion research seriously, I think uh, yeah, that's part of why you know like it probably is going to be like India and China who are going to be leading the way over there because you know the U.S. and friends are kind of pot committed to a global petrochemical empire that like you know there's just so much superstructure that's built around that. I mean, you know, it's our relationship with Saudi and then and the other uh, Gulf monarchies, like you know, it's it's and, and it's the weapons deals. Like that, you know, are really kind of just protection rackets where we sell them weapons that you know they may or may not be useful and they may or may not even be able to use. That, uh, but you know, like are part of that whole grift. But you know, I mean, uh, India and China are net oil importers, and so the bourgeoisie there, I mean, it actually does kind of make sense for them to uh, uh, you know uh, try and ditch oil. And uh, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, also l- l- look at this stuff in terms of like, yeah, you know, c- capital really does have it in telekey b- b- because like, you know, like oil, you know, l- l- um, you know o- o- oil company owners have to get a return on their investment. That is non-negotiable. But, you know, I mean, we can destroy auto manufacturing jobs in uh, in, in Detroit. L- l- like, that's fine. That's progress. You know, I mean, we can break that up and, uh, uh, you know, and, and 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 modernize it. You know, th- that's totally fine. But I mean, you know, th- yeah. Uh, um, uh, what's it? Any of the, I'm, I'm thinking about, there's an interesting kind of figure ground problem here too, where like uh, I'm thinking about how like uh, uh, yeah, you, you know who's actually really good at what beer is describing is like uh, like on a, a Shark Tank or, or Dragon's Den. Like they have a very good uh, sense of uh, what their real objectives are and how a piece of shiny technology doesn't actually necessarily advance it. You know, I mean, the, it's interesting like watching you know uh, one of them describe. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's very interesting with X Y Z. You know, that uh, and and may even solve the problem. Them, but I mean, you know, what I'm looking for is, uh, you know, is profit for me, you know, some like uh, uh, IP I can license or something that, you know, maybe synergizes with something else uh, that I own. And like, they actually have a very, you know, good sense of what their high level objectives are. And, uh, you know, the, and, and I guess, you know, you could, you know, I, I, I see how like someone who's more of a, what they call, you know, a, um, 
uh, 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 a mistake theorist as opposed to a conflict theorist would say that, I mean, profitability to them is really just a second order thing. You know, I mean, like that, that's synonymous with all of us doing better. And, uh, uh, you know, like if you just persuaded them <laughs> that, uh, uh, you know, that you have like a better metric than, than price signals um, uh, uh, to discipline the economy, you know, they would be on board. But of course, like that's not entirely true. You know, Maybe there are some people who are just bought into ideology. But I mean, people whose class positions actually benefit from this stuff. I mean, you can't actually persuade them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. Shark Tank is an interesting example because the the terms of the deals that they set with the people who are on the show are so favorable to them. It would probably make sense for them to just invest in literally everything, but then they wouldn't be able to make a show of being discerning investors. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, she, go ahead. Index funds—that's what you got. That, that's what they got to get into. But that would not be a good show. Um, yeah, the, the 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 weapons stuff, like the the military stuff, is actually yeah. As Matt reminds me, is a really clear example of this sort of thing where the U.S. has been using its military-industrial complex as like a job, an enormous jobs program to keep sectors of or sections of the um, the country afloat. And then you speak to anyone like a sort of. Uh, on the ground troop, right? Like, and if they're if they're on deployment, they just get shipments of fucking bullshit every every week. It's like, oh, here's a crate full of fucking bullshit body armor that doesn't actually work, or here's here's a rifle that shoots backwards, yada yada. And it's like because shutting all that shit down is absolutely inconceivable, so they have to put up with all the crap um, that it produces, and. Even though it's worthless, it still has to be produced because it has to valorize all those past investments. It has to have that kind of functional thing, um, even when it is absolutely deranged um, to the to to the people that actually have to use it. Um, so not only is it a horrible industry that produces murderous sort of crap, but it's like not even not even murderous crap that even works or is useful. It's just generating more and more bullshit to keep itself alive. Um, and then all that bullshit ends up being shipped back home and given to the fucking police. So, um, you know, keeping those investments afloat turns out to have a gargantuan cost, but it's not a cost that capital gives a shit about. So, shrug. Extremely muted, Kyle. It's one of the biggest grifts in the world. Just, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah, no. totally. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, folks, uh, that is our second to last session. Undoubtedly, we have a little bit uh, left to cover next time, and that's going to be that. Um, Indeed, we made it. Well, we almost made it. Who knows? Uh, um, Jake we'll is saying that uh, they doubt this, this is going to be the last session. It's like just, just be realistic. Just be realistic. three pages, if that. Yeah. You know? no. You never yeah. know. <laughs> we can we can do this. We'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. I mean, we have to revise our plans down to the millisecond, as we've established mm -hmm. here. So, I don't want to. I don't want to overcommit. I suppose, but ending I, ending would give up my uh, power as a member of this reading group, and mm -hmm. I don't want to lose. That. <laughs> actually, just one tiny closing comment. Actually, that, that, that reminds me. I don't think Beer ever really addresses it, but like the the constantly renewed plans could be at risk of like Xenos paradoxing their way into infinity, like if they're actually like asymptotically approaching a goal. So you yeah. probably need some sort of way to short circuit them the thing and and declare, well, it's basically done. That's, um, well, that's 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 what you have a system five for, right? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. I guess so. But he also talks about just like reality happening, causing closure yeah. of that. Like things happen you and have to stop. Eventually, you have to come to a yes or no or whatever. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. We we are not going to you know paradox ourselves into completing half of a chapter to infinity. <laughs> uh, next time, so no. let, let's Definitely. see what happens if we can, if we can jump that barrier, take a bold leap into the impossible, mm-hmm. and uh, wrap you know up what? This it, it'll be just shy of a year, basically, since we started. Yeah, <laughs> if that's the case, wow, yeah. incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Uh, and I'll right. uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.